Listening to episode 61 of Sass Mail Stames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. No one could accuse June Havoc of having a type or marrying the same man over and over again. Her first husband, Bobby Reed, was only a boy, really, a vaudevillian like herself, raised for curtain calls on the company of show folk. When June Havoc was dating her second husband, Don Gibbs, she took great pains to disguise her past. Gibbs was a Harvard man. June observed the sort of uniform that the women who ran in their circles wore. It was an A-line skirt, a blouse, a sweater, very simple, flat shoes, unfussy hair. In their company, she was uncharacteristically laconic. She listened and kept her mouth shut. She was careful about her manners, and she did her best to fit in. All the while, June was embarrassed by the fact that she had never been enrolled in any school. She learned to read backstage, where fellow vaudevillians taught her phonetic pronunciation. She felt haunted by her lack of formal education and played catch-up throughout her life. No doubt June chose Gibbs, a mama's boy and a heavy drinker, precisely because of his university laurels. Once, she joined the crew uh, from the Crimson Alumni for a football weekend. June was proud of her ability to fit in. She was an actress, after all, so she should have given herself more credit. At the end of the weekend, when they were driving home, they had car trouble, and they wound up with a flat tire. June rolled up her sleeves and jumped at the chance to solve the problem for the bunch when it turned out that nobody else knew how to change a tire. Her first husband and the other men she trooped with in vaudeville and in those dance marathons of the Depression that she entered later had all praised June for her excellent driving ability. More than once, they had said that she drove like a man, the ultimate compliment for a woman behind the wheel, she thought, as they earned their living on the road. But then, with the Harvard graduates, once the fresh tire was on, everything changed. They turned quiet. They acted as though she were cheap and sordid. That June knew how to change a tire and did so in a speedy and efficient manner marked her out. She might look like one of them, but she wasn't really. She could never have guessed that what made her competent for survival would lump her in with the have-nots among the haves. June Havoc never stopped to ask herself if those spoilt rich folks were worth her time. They had every opportunity, all the bona fides, yet how much did they really know about life? And who among them had the stamina and resourcefulness of June Havoc? Not a one. June married Don anyway. And over the years as she worked to advance her stage and film career, he recessed into bitterness and frustration over being a so-called writer who could never actually write anything. The marriage was doomed. All I want for Christmas is to listen to June Havoc fire off hard-boiled dialogue as she does in The Story of Molly X, which premiered in 1949. Molly X twists the boilerplates of gangster and prison pictures and delivers something we don't see enough of, how society might enable an ambitious woman rather than destroy her. You can find it on YouTube. The print isn't great. 
It deserves a proper DVD release. Written and directed by Crane Wilbur, a man who started an acting career performing works by Yates. He was also a screenwriter, acted for the screen. Crane Wilbur was nephew to Tyrone Power Sr. That's some pedigree. It's a firm B picture filmed in the gritty neo-documentary style of the era that became dominant in the post-war. At every turn, the story of Molly X shakes the cobwebs off the conventions. June Havoc, in a rare starring role, gives so much depth to her performance. She layers years of professional experience to give us something special, a dame who gets a second chance. Molly X is one of those pictures where I'm won over by the leading lady's first line. Molly's hard-boiled, but she has a warm, soft center. June provides a brief narration about her hubris and thinking she had it all, while the camera gives us a sweeping view of the San Francisco skyline. She tells us that the story involves real people, so she'll remain anonymous and go by Molly X. Cut to a restaurant, the opening scene, with a view overlooking the city. June's character wears smart attire, a dark wool suit with a nipped waist jacket. The maitre d' leads June to a table for four. While she sits and waits, a sailor crawls out of the woodwork and slithers over to her table. His bid for her attention is fairly uninspired. She looks at him and says, "Ah, you're cute. Then she tells him to go get lost. She tells him to get lost a second time before he takes the hint. It's not her first time at the rodeo. The Swabby has no idea how out of her league he is. When a couple of men file in and sit down, Molly has a proposition which puts her at the head of a crime syndicate. Her husband, recently killed, was the boss, so in steps June to fill his wingtips. One man leers and tells her that grief looks good on her. Molly wears her widow's weeds as though they were fresh from the window of Lord and Taylor, or I. Magnum. The men have names like Cash and Rod, which are no doubt meant to be allegorical. Rod totes along his gun maul, Anne, played by Dorothy Hart. From their first scene together, it's made clear that the antagonism between Anne and Molly will grow. Anne cracks wise about Molly's partner husband's demise. On the quiet side, Cash Brady, played by John Russell, admits he's never taken orders from a dame before. Elliot Lewis plays Rod Markle, and you can see that he has another role in mind for Molly, more like laundering his shirts and serving him breakfast, rather than planning jewel heists. Things don't turn out how Rod expects, though. As the film progresses, conflict accelerates between the women. As is often the case in women's pictures, the most intense encounters and the most important interactions happen between women. Somehow, there are plenty of women like Anne who seem to resist having a woman in charge. They resent it more than the men do. I think about that scene from Cry Havoc when Anne Southern objects to having Margaret Sullivan in charge. She bristles, I don't take orders from dames. Molly puts a crew together to steal jewels and payrolls. All men. She's the brains of the operation. Anne resents her from her more traditional role of gun maul as she's hanging her arms around Rod's neck. 
When Molly and Anne meet for a second time, it's in a hotel as the gang prepares for another job. Anne wants to stage a catfight over Rod. She accuses Molly of trying to move in on her man, as though there weren't more important matters at stake. Anne has her big moment. She throws out the accusation and then she slaps Molly across the face. Molly has as much control as the expertly tailored suit she wears. She doesn't raise her voice, but she leans toward Anne, sticks her hand on her chest, grabs her dress. She fills her hand with it, then twists the dress and tugs Anne closer. In a low voice, Molly tells Anne that she needs to get it into her head, since she's the type who probably learns things the hard way, that Molly is no one's girl. She winds up her warning with a promise rather than a threat that if she has to put her down, she'll stay down. The sexy brunette has no comeback when Molly lays out how it's going to go. Anne wants to keep things simple in bite-sized pieces, but Molly is after the whole pie. World-weary, the queen of the rackets, tosses off lines such as coppers, they couldn't find a pair of pajamas and a bowl of soup. June's delivery has the elegance of a woman peeling off a pair of satin opera gloves. Later, Molly and Cash are pinched by Charles McGraw, he of the ragged, mentholated voice of the stone-cold noir classic The Narrow Margin. McGraw plays a detective who tells the pair that they're coming down to the station with him. Molly objects calmly, you have nothing on us. Why were you going down the fire escape, he asks. We're eccentric. Short, sweet, and the delivery is as unruffled as a feather boa on May West. A lawyer questions a witness during Molly's trial and how unusual it was to have a woman in charge. The gangster on the stand replies, First thing you know, the Danes will be taking over the whole racket. The courtroom erupts in laughter. In a small throwaway scene that isn't of any great importance to the plot, viewers gain a perfect snapshot of what June might have been like back in the days when she made $1,500 a week in vaudeville. During a dance one night in the prison, June entertains the sorority with a story about a dog, a cat, and a bird in the prison yard. Just a little story, nothing much. But check out the face she makes when she gives the impression of the baby bird. Her mouth spreads open into a flat grin, her tongue peeks out, and her eyes flutter back. Pure vaudeville. It brought to mind one scene from her second memoir, More Havoc, when she recalled clowning around backstage while waiting to audition one day. She was doing an impression of a sick cat walking down a hallway crowded with rats that had the women cracking up. Suddenly, a stage manager appeared, pulled her out of the queue, and took her to audition for a bigwig. He didn't tell her who it was. He told her, do that bit again for the man. She did that and everything else she could think of for an old man wearing a shawl and carpet slippers. They even danced together. She ate all the pastries he had laid out after he fell asleep in his chair. June went to write a note of thanks to the man, and she noticed on his desk his stationery, which had the name George M. Cohan on the letterhead. 
Universal's grubby bee pictures here avoid prison movie cliches like a second story man does the alarms. There are no sadistic matrons in the prison who starve, beat, or sexually menace the inmates. There's no squalid scenes of prison hierarchy. The climax is in a jailbreak. In Tehachapi Prison, reform is the mission. The prison officials are not out for biblical punishment or conversion in the usual sense. It's almost run like a co-op where women find meaning and purpose in their work. When the matrons try to sort out her work detail, Molly quips, Look, I'm a career woman, but I didn't come here to learn a new trade. Molly refuses to work, and then she gets frozen out by the other women. Prison officials confine Molly to a room, one she shares with an ex-thief who reads books on philosophy. Molly becomes stir-crazy fairly soon, mostly due to the gossip that circulates about another inmate, a woman up for murder for killing a man. The word comes through that the woman will be sent to death row in San Quentin. The news rattles Molly. She asks rhetorically of her roommate, how do we know what made her bad? Then Molly starts thinking about what made her leave home when her mother married again and the new man around the house wouldn't leave her alone. Molly said it was cat and mouse from when she turned 16. Her mother knew and blamed her for it. I imagine that June Havoc had plenty to draw on for that scene, with the men Mama Rose turned up with, who crawled into bed with June and put her hand inside their trousers. Molly soon begs for work, anything to help her sleep at night. She finds the answer to what her life would be like if she wasn't a gangster's mall and she wasn't a crime boss. Molly's custodial sentence, in effect, gives her two years as an apprentice fashion designer. She learns how to cut, fit, sew, and draw her own ideas, from the page, to the workroom, to her body. Later, when she's released, a dress manufacturer hires Molly based on the garments she made and models. It may not be as thrilling as being queen of the rackets, but it certainly has a future. The story of Molly X is such an underrated gem. Put this one on your watch list. Once June Havoc took root in her mother's womb, she held on with all the tenacity that saw her through a long series of trials from when she was only a child. Rose Hovick was determined to be rid of the child she had growing inside. She took a dive down a staircase, sucked on a bottle of gin, battered her stomach, sat in scalding water, yet June held on. No wonder June was born with a set of dark circles under her eyes from the moment she was born. When she was delivered in one piece, Mama Rose took one look at her, blue eyes and blonde hair, and conferred the name that she had already bestowed on her firstborn. Born one year earlier, Ellen June suddenly became Rose Louise Hovick on a revised birth certificate. The new baby became Ellen June, with the Ellen soon left off. One day, in the middle of her reluctant sister's dance lesson, a two-year-old June stood up on her toes in the middle of class and performed circles. Mama Rose's eyes must have dilated to include cartoon-sized dollar signs. 
Against the professional advice of the dance teachers, Mama Rose put June into toe shoes to perform from the age of two. Even though the pink satin slippers she wore had to be replaced often because they became stained with blood. At night, Rose massaged ointment on June's cracked feet and broken toenails. It was a sensation that she experienced in the dance marathons years later when she was 13 and responsible for her own survival. Baby June was billed as the pocket-sized Pavlova, then Dainty June. She became her mother's meal ticket during the tail-end run of vaudeville. June was the star, and her sister Louise was included on the bill only under Dainty June and Company. Sometimes billed as the doll girl, then a Bowery tough, Louise had little more to do than pose on stage or feed lines that would produce a big laugh for her sister. It's easy to understand how rivalry and resentment dominated their relationship as children. Rose decided to build a career for her daughter in Hollywood. In the middle of a casting call full of blonde girls wearing big smiles and a mass of curly blonde hair, June caught the attention of the director, Hal Roach. The director watched Rose pinch the little girl's cheeks for color until they brought tears to the girl's eyes. Roach approached mother and daughter and asked if the girl knew any rhymes. Four-year-old June launched into the following song. Nobody knows me number, nobody knows me name, nobody knows where I gets me clothes, but I gets them all the same, see? June was in. Roach admonished Rose to stop pinching June's cheeks. He took one look at the dark circles under the little girl's eyes and said he wanted her for the part of a starving waif. She played the darling waif in a number of shorts and films. Whenever June needed to cry on cue, her mother Rose sidled over to her and broke the bad news. Her dog, Nini, was dead. Run over. June believed her every time and sobbed for the camera. After baby June was passed over by Cecil B. DeMille for a child who couldn't even cry on cue, Mama Rose put her daughters back on the vaudeville circuit. Baby June joined the Pantages' West Coast lineup when she was four years old and made $750 a week. By the age of five, she was top-billed as Dainty June in the prestigious Keith Orpheum circuit on the East Coast with a patented registered trademark on the stage act Dainty June. She made $1,500 a week. Imitation acts sprung up called Baby June in the Midwest. Mama Rose kept June's earnings in a gray grouch bag she wore wrapped around her waist. At one time, June and Gypsy speculated about how much money accounted for the unsightly bulge around their mother's middle. It was in the neighborhood of $25,000. Mama Rose warned them not to mention it to anyone. At this time, June longed for a baby doll. Mama Rose doled out a dollar a day to her daughters, which was supposed to cover their three meals for the day. She fed the girls coffee and rolls for breakfast. She complained when her second husband insisted that they start brushing their teeth. The girls performed every day, four shows a day in total. June often had five or more numbers in the act. They had limited free time and no schooling until Mama Rose was compelled by the state to hire a governess. 
the governess wasn't on the payroll much longer than it took for publicity shots. She was sacked when she caught the girls shoplifting and marched them into the store's front office to confess. Mama Rose objected. How dare she upset her, you know, little June? When they were not performing, June kept to a strict rehearsal schedule. Since Louise's part wasn't considered important, she was able to escape with a book. Louise soon earned the nickname The Duchess from the boys in the act because she was aloof and full of disdain. Louise polished and honed those gifts when she became Gypsy Rose Lee on the stage. But for June, it was work, work, work. And when she wasn't practicing, she was told to watch other acts and steal from them, which Rose also did. Rose had June perform through the chicken pox and mumps, damn the high fevers and sickness, the show must go on. She would prop June up with makeup and medicine against the doctor's orders. June continued to perform the infantilized act, with her mother changing the date on her birth certificate every year or so, so that she was getting younger and younger as she hit puberty. The baby act had ceased to be plausible. She had heard of one theater manager who told Rose that June had remarkable talent, real talent, and that the girl should be let to study acting, singing, and dancing so she could have a real shot at a professional career. Rose snapped that her baby already knew everything she needed to know to be a headlining act. June felt trapped, as though she would never learn anything, never grow up, never get beyond the baby act. One day, when June was 12 years old, she had a nervous breakdown. It was though her battery powered down and she could no longer rally. She was blank, drained, without the ability to do anything. Rose reacted with her usual arsenal of histrionics, a mix of threats and bribes. But when June couldn't get out of bed, Rose finally had to admit something was wrong and rang for the doctor. The doctor ordered Rose to keep her daughter in bed for two weeks at the very minimum. When she was 13, June had had enough. She had outgrown the children's parts, yet she was too young to play adult roles. She felt that she would spiral out in the dregs of vaudeville when seats were half empty now. Vaudeville could not compete with the radio and talking pictures. June wanted to learn how to be a proper actor on the stage, and she knew that if she stayed, she would never have the chance to grow as an artist. So she ran off with Bobby Reed one of the many boys in a long line that Rose picked up off the street who were orphaned, abandoned, or otherwise left to their own devices. She used them in the act and never paid the boys. She said the experience was worth everything. When they left, when they ran off, Mama Rose alerted the police. Later, when she caught up to June and Bobby, she pulled a gun on the boy furious that he would take away her principal source of income. This was in a police station. She pulled the trigger. The only thing that saved the boy's life was that the safety was on the gun. The young couple ran away again and were married when June was 13 years old. In her memoir, she downplays Bobby's role in her life and the amount of time they were together, but it makes for a better story. June survives in sporadic stage work, performing her old dance routines. She felt solvent if she had a hot dog and a pretzel on the daily menu. 
In June's first memoir, Early Havoc, she devotes a large portion of the time of the book to when she was in dance marathons. She lasted more than four months in her first marathon before she bowed out. Although she swore she would never be in another one, as it turned out, by the force of sheer necessity, June endured seven dance marathons. She won the last one that she entered. Marathon dance contests were measured in hours, as in how many hours can participants stay awake with their feet in constant motion. When June finally won, she made it to 3,750 hours which works out to be 156 days, more than five months, in the arena. The thing that lured June to the pitiless dance contest time after time was hunger. Blunt, rude, unrelenting hunger. Dance marathons were sadistic and brutal, but the one bonus was that the organizers wheeled out a table of food 12 times in a 24-hour period. Even with constant motion and no sleep, June was able to put on weight this way. She wrote that by the end of a marathon, she almost looked female. Divided in pairs, the marathoners worked a system where they could trade a three-hour period each night of blissful unconsciousness. They carried each other around the arena on their backs. You can imagine the strain it had on women lugging around men who are generally much heavier. June emphasized several times in her book that every single time a team won a marathon, they did so by the sweat and perseverance from the woman. Women endured the physical and psychological trauma easier than the men. Women lugged the men and carried a greater burden. During her first marathon, when June was only 14 years old, she learned the hard way that the competition was fierce and the code on the dance floor was inviolate. The advice from the manager who signed her was to keep her mouth shut. Don't squeal, don't complain or annoy the horses. The experienced longtime crew who operated with a tenacious physical drive, they just kept going, even without sleep. The biggest danger, aside from lack of sleep and physical pain, were the episodes of going what they called squirrely, the term dancers used to describe the hallucinations that came from a lack of sleep. Nationwide, dance marathons provided cheap entertainment during the Depression. They were a competition, so bets were laid on favorites. Picture postcards with stats circulated to build a following much in the vein of baseball cards. Players made emotional bids in the arena with songs or comedy routines where spectators were encouraged to throw coins. June recalls that in the wee hours of the morning, they were often visited by clientele from speakeasies, body houses, and gambling dens. People drank, fought, and fooled around in the stands. Families packed picnic baskets, Some stood ringside and flirted with the dancers. Once, June saw Texas Guinan, who'd been a vaudeville hero. Texas visited in the pre-dawn hours, steaming drunk. One of the managers said it was an honor that she picked their show to get swacked. Other stars appeared in the stands. 
and plenty of the swells who slummed it, watching the destitute grind themselves to dust for prize money. In between marathons, she did the round of casting calls in New York City. As long as her daily hot dog and pretzel budget held out, she auditioned and hoped. When she was skint, June wired the marathon promoters who sent her bus fare to the next show. She tucked the cash in her own grouch bag and thumbed it to the new marathon. June later wrote and directed a play on Broadway called Marathon 33. It was nominated for a Tony. In between marathons, she finally stopped by to see her sister. Louise had become a celebrated burlesque performer named Gypsy Rose Lee. June caught one of her sister's performances. She was shocked. When she entered the theater and took a seat in the back, a large man leaned over her shoulder and, through heavy breathing, asked, Would you like a cup of coffee? June said no and turned to look at the stage. It took a minute, but June realized that this was a code and that the man had thought she was a sex worker. When Gypsy appeared on stage, June could not believe what she saw. Gypsy was completely naked. She crouched by the footlights at the end of the stage. By tradition, vaudeville folks looked down on burlesque. If you were forced into burlesque, you never admitted to it. June was so aghast at Gypsy's act that she took no notice of what happened in the audience. June didn't see the men who put pieces of liver into milk bottles and then opened their trousers. She didn't see or hear the newspapers crumpled over their laps, rustling. The sisters had a furious row about it later. Gypsy told June that what she did wasn't any better. The audience at a dance marathon arrived with a picnic basket to watch rejects hump and lose their minds on the dance floor. The sibling rivalry her mother encouraged was still going strong. Not long after June won the last marathon she entered, she became pregnant by Jamie, an older married man who was also a regular in the marathon circuit. She told him the baby would just be hers. Jamie did not come to a good end. He died later on the arena floor, keeled over during a marathon from a heart attack. Her first husband, Bobby Reed, had a similar grisly end. He lost an eye on the dance floor during a marathon, and then he later died in an asylum, insensible and raving from syphilis. An old trick from the marathon saved June and her baby. When she couldn't find work in the theater back in New York, June went to the garment district to find work as a mannequin. That's what they called dress models then. In the powder room, she met one of the mannequins who was hung over as a goat. The woman was struggling. Her feet were too swollen for her shoes. She had a queasy stomach and a headache. June said she knew something that would fix her right up. She asked for a bucket of ice. June had the woman sit down. She told her that it would be rough for the first minute, but then she would see a big improvement. June plunged the woman's feet into the bucket of icy water. The mannequin passed out cold after 30 seconds. Panicked, June ran for help. Later, she found the woman. 
The woman with the ice bucket feet thanked June for saving her job. She took the clothes off her back and loaned them to June so she could look good for an interview. The model showed June how to walk, bend, and say, This is Chanel, number 584. June got the job, which kept her going until she landed her first Broadway show. June Havoc's second book only covers her life up until when she was 27 years old. And since she lived to be 97, that's a huge chunk of her life we're left wondering about. She had said in a television interview that she'd planned a third book, but unfortunately it never materialized. I would have loved to have read more about her relationship with Gypsy when they lived together for years in Gypsy's massive brownstone on 63rd Street, or more about her film roles, or when she worked in television, or what led June to buy a town in Connecticut, and how she refurbished dilapidated buildings into tourist mecca for antiques, plus kept an animal sanctuary. Most people would not have survived what June endured. Four books helped me with this episode. Three of them are by June Havoc. Early Havoc, published in 1959. More Havoc, published in 1980. Marathon 33, which premiered in 1963 and was later published. American Rose, A Nation Laid Bare, The Life and Times of Gypsy Rose Lee by Karen Abbott, was published in 2010. I'll close the episode with a passage from June's book, Early Havoc, about her first dance marathon. When the bell clanged, we who were carrying sleeping boys totted towards their quarters with our charges, lowered them onto the cots, removed their shoes, then straggled back to our own rest quarters. I met Dottie in the ladies' room, where I gave her my 50-cent pieces. With two wide strips of adhesive tape, she strapped the coins tightly under my metatarsal arches. I stood up and groaned in pain. She clamped her hand over my mouth quickly. Word of honor, remember, she whispered. Keep your mouth shut. Just be brave and leave this be for three or four periods, no matter how it hurts, and you'll be surprised. I hugged her gratefully. She shrugged me off modestly. Ain't anything anybody else wouldn't do for a pal. Biting my lips, I limped back to the rest quarters and lay down waiting for the siren. It came within seconds. I gritted my teeth and managed to go to the boys' quarters where I collected Patsy. During the next two hours, I buried my face in Patsy's limp neck while I dragged him, sleeping, about the floor. The coins on my feet felt like a dentist's drill and a sensitive tooth. I kept thinking, if I can only get through this part, the awful pain part, it'll be all right. Because Dottie's cure will work, and then I'll just be one of the pros. I finally had conclusive proof that Dottie was a pal. Going to her for help had been a good idea. It was breakfast time. The floor judge circled the tall table constantly with his anxious ruler. Patsy had had a sleep, so after breakfast I would begin mine. He looked at me oddly. I couldn't eat, and I couldn't stay on one foot very long. Mr. James must have been delighted because I certainly kept moving from one foot to the other. Breakfast over, Patsy prepared to carry me. I had learned to sleep with my head leaning against his chest, my hands in his hip pockets. Because it was my first marathon, my knees didn't buckle. I stood and moved as he ordered. But this time I couldn't sleep. 
I finally wound up putting my sweater over my head and giving way to my agony secretly. The sharp, searing heat had gone up my legs and reached my back. My head thumped, and I could hardly see. At about nine o'clock, Mr. Dankel arrived, complete with early morning cigar. He shouted gay good mornings to whoever was awake. How about a trip to the beauty parlor, he said and guffawed. It was a favorite joke of his, for no matter how much we combed and prettied ourselves for the afternoon and evening, we just gave up after the midnight show. So breakfast was zero hour for the girls. We couldn't have looked rattier, and we knew it. Mr. Dankel thought it terribly amusing. But this time he brought us a present. Three or four hair dryers were rolled onto the floor, and a few beauty operators appeared. We were to have our hair done. There were squeals of delight. I looked at the beauty equipment longingly, but I didn't know if I could endure standing under the dryer. I gave up the lovely picture of clean curls and buried my face hard in Patsy's chest. My three hours of trying to sleep ended on the 11 o'clock period. I had to face the truth. Walking at all was now almost impossible. I figured if Dottie's cure hadn't helped, I ought to give up. I limped over to the boss. Mr. Dankel, I said, I can't go any further. I just can't walk. My legs have gone numb. He didn't seem to be listening. I'm awfully sorry to disappoint you, Mr. Dankel, but what's the matter? He hollered suddenly. You gone squirrely or something? There's nothing the matter with you. For God's sake, you haven't even started. Mr. James came along and slapped my calf sharply. Keep moving, he said. No, I screamed. Don't, don't. Not now, Mr. Dankel remonstrated. No temper. I, I, I don't want to quit, Mr. Dankel. I'm all right from the waist up. It's just that I can't walk, and it's my own fault because I've had help, too. I bit my lip. Shh, keep your mouth shut, echoed in my foggy head. I mean, I stammered, I guess I'm just not as strong as I ought to be, so... Mr. Dankel's eyes shot sparks. Help, eh? What do you got in your shoes? Nothing, I lied. He turned abruptly and left me. It was true. My feet were so mercifully numb. A truck could have run over them without sensation, but my back wouldn't hold me up. Dottie fell and stepped beside me. I tried to smile at her. I'm ashamed to flop out on you, Dottie. I've just got to give up, but I'll always be grateful to you for giving me the secret I'll never forget. I'll meet you in the rest quarter, she whispered, as soon as the bell rings. When the bell did ring, I staggered to the ladies' room. Dottie closed the door and quickly snipped the adhesive from my feet. She left me curled up on the floor in the, of the shower, semi-conscious and quite happy. When the siren rang, I didn't hear it. Dottie had turned the shower on me. It was warm and soft. It felt heavenly as it soaked my clothes. The audience had begun to come in, but Mr. Burke didn't want to ring the starting bell until I was found. Plans had been made for me. I was scheduled to be the little Mamie of the show and would have missed too much by Mr. Dankel, so he stalled a few seconds. When Rose found me, she carried me dripping to the dance floor. She put my feet down far enough so that they just touched while she supported my body. Not until then did the bell start ringing. There was a furious row from the contestants. Half of them threatened to walk off the floor. The audience got into the act. 
They didn't understand why there wasn't a fuss as long as I was present before the bell. The fact that I was out cold made some of the people in the audience think I should be put to bed at once. Someone called an ambulance. A squad car arrived. There was hell to pay. Mr. Dankel held up the microphone with a thundercloud for a face. Now shut up. I mean quiet, everyone. No, not you in the audience. I mean the dancers. Now the only way to stop this from growing into a big rhubarb is to tell the truth, and that ain't hard to do. Jeannie was locked in the ladies' room. She isn't sleeping. She's unconscious. And I'll tell you why. Some damn smart aleck on this floor must have convinced her that the way to fix up her sore feet was to tape these 50-cent pieces under her arches. He held up the damning evidence. Rose found these next to Jeannie with a pair of scissors. It's an old crooked trick with marathon pros, ladies and gentlemen in the audience. It's been used to force amateurs out of contests before, and that's why I ain't going to let it be done again. Instead, I'm going to show you folks Jeannie's feet, and we're going to bring her to and ask her if she wants to quit. The crowd roared its approval. This event was bound to make me the most popular kid in the marathon, and it would also ensure my position with the dancers. I'd be a social leper. I missed all this, lying like a wet flounder in Rose's strong, capable arms. But I heard all about it many times afterwards. As God is my witness, Dankel thundered, we play fair. We don't allow rotten tricks or rotten people. If we catch them, we kick them out. And as soon as Jeannie can tell us, we'll find out who did this. Then we'll take a vote right here on whether they should be disqualified. It's up to you folks, as God is my witness. Mr. Dangle should have been an evangelist. His voice rang with passion. The place teemed with excitement. This was meat and potatoes, a nice lively cockfight, blood and thunder. Rose dragged me into the hospital. They opened the curtains so the audience could watch the resuscitation. All these trimmings were included in the price of admission. When I opened my eyes, the first thing I saw was Patsy's dejected figure. He was looking at me through the hospital window. Large tears were streaming down his face. I thought he was in trouble, and I felt terribly sorry for him. Rose waved to Mr. Dankel at the microphone. He picked up his cue. She's coming too, he bellowed. Let her hear you. The crowd stomped and cheered wildly. She gave me something to drink. It was quite different from that other stuff that had quieted me. This time, my hair stood on end. I looked up at her and I said, wow. She spoke quietly while she buttoned my blouse and rubbed my hands. They're going to ask you who taped the coins on your feet. They know all about it, but they don't know who did it. You can tell them if you want. I can? I asked unbelievingly. If you want, she repeated. Then come back in here. See if you can stand it until then. Wow, I said weakly. She wrapped me in a blanket. Two husky trainers lifted me from the exhibition bed. They carried me basket style, their hands forming a little chair between them. I saw my feet for the first time. The tape had been tight enough to cut the flesh as it began to swell. The swellings were blue where the tape had been. The part that had puffed up was bright red. The calluses had cracked open and were bleeding. 
I was sure I was going to be sick. Rose put a towel in my hands. I clapped it to my mouth as the trainers carried me around the ring, slowly for the audience to view my feet. The people were quiet. I felt as though I were being carried nude through a crowd of mad people. I wanted to die. I hated Patsy for feeling sorry for me. I did want to star in a part like this. I buried my whole face in the towel. I was a sideshow and a horrible nightmare. The trainers brought me up to the microphone where Mr. Dankel stood. The silence was loaded. A woman sobbed in one of the bleachers. Mr. Dankel spoke. His voice was subdued. When I hold my right arm out, any of you who thinks Jeannie shouldn't get another chance, and you don't want to hear Jeannie's own story about what happened, let yourself be heard, and she will be taken to rest quarters, put to bed, and told to forget about her hopes and dreams of winning any prize money. All her pluck and courage will go for nothing, and you will never see her again. He held his right arm over his head. There was hardly a movement in the crowd. Then, in a lower tone, he said, In a minute, I'm going to hold my left arm up, and those of you who think little Jeannie should get another chance to win this marathon, if she wants it, will answer. Then she'll tell how it happened and who did this terrible thing. Boys, take her out there where the folks can see her. The silence held its breath. Mr. Dangle was a showman. The trainers carried me to the center of the floor. The bright lights glared. If only I could have disappeared, fallen through the floor, shot myself, anything. Jeannie, Mr. Dankel's voice rang out over the microphone. If we get the proper attention for your feet, do you want to continue on this dance marathon? I burned with shame, but I nodded yes. Inside, I was hot with new emotion. Hit back, it whispered, fight. You feel strong enough to go on? I nodded yes again. And then Mr. Dankel made his pitch. Ladies and gentlemen, he implored fervently, are we going to let little Jeannie be carried off this floor a failure? Are we? He shouted. He raised his left arm above his head as if in a wild salute. The crowd didn't applaud or stomp. There was a shattering roar. No, no, no. I felt loved, warmed, wanted. I wept openly. I forgot the hurt in my feet. I forgot everything. I thought they really loved me. I believed what Mr. Dankel had told me. When the trainers had carried me back to the microphone and the noise of the crowd had diminished, Mr. Dankel said, Now, Jeannie, tell us who taped your feet. Don't be afraid. I recalled Rose saying, If you want, and Mr. Dankel's, Keep your mouth shut. The now familiar cigar breath fanned my face. I shivered under my blanket, then I pushed the words out. It was all my idea. I heard it helped strengthen arches. The lie stuck in my throat, but fear gave me a voice. I knew I was cowardly, but Dottie's eyes were suddenly on me. Mr. Dankel pressed my hand in approval. Keep your mouth shut had been my motto. All right then, Mr. Dankel announced. Blow your whistle, Mr. Floor Judge. The show goes on. I was taken back into the hospital, where Rose put some oil and thick, greasy unguent on my feet. It softened the calluses. Another salve doubled the balm. 
In each of my shoes, she placed a certain feminine personal necessity. When I stepped down, my feet felt heavenly. Every three hours until they were well, Rose lubricated, softened, and repaired my feet. I was very proud of my calluses. They were numb and sort of springy. They covered my heels and formed along my toes. They made my feet two sizes larger, but I didn't care. All I had at the end of my legs were shoes. If I could stick it out on my calluses, they would finally reach maturity. One of the reasons why the first 500 hours are the toughest is that while you're getting your calluses, there are too many contestants for the staff to care for, so you have to oil your own feet. If you're a pro, you don't tell this to an amateur. You don't tell him any real tricks of the trade. You just hope he falls out quickly and quietly. If he doesn't and you don't get caught, you as a pro are only too happy to help him O-U-T. I was catching on. My lie had been good marathon manners. Mr. Dankel's reaction left no doubt that I had inched a bit further into his club. Thanks so much for joining me. Come back next time when I talk about episode 62 in January 2020 with Barbara Stanwyck in The Lady of Burlesque from 1943. The picture is based on the novel The G-String Murders by Gypsy Rose Lee. Thanks again.